into the Word of God. Uh, we are going to read, <clears throat> excuse me, today in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. That is found on page 977 in one of our Bibles in the back. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has, broke, who has made him us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. May Lord bless the preaching of his word. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you again. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 14 to 18. Now, many of you are probably old enough to remember one of the most stirring speeches of the presidency of Ronald Reagan. It was given on June 12, 1987, when I was but a wee lad of seven years old. The speech only lasted for 2,703 words, but it was delivered at a very unique place, if you remember. It was delivered at the Brandenburg Gate in West Berlin. Now, for those of you who don't remember that, or perhaps weren't even born yet, the Brandenburg Gate served as a visible symbol of the unity which had been fractured between East and West Berlin and between the communist world and the free world. It was a visible symbol of that huge barrier, some of which was literally made out of stone, if you remember how this thing was constructed, made out of stone and concrete and steel and barbed wire with watchtowers that stretch from north of Europe all the way to the south, dividing the communist world from the free world, the democratic world, dividing the first world from the second world. And President Reagan was there to meet with leaders in West Berlin, and while there he delivered this speech to the people of West Berlin, but it was heard by many in East Berlin as well on the other side of that wall. And the whole speech is pretty interesting, but perhaps the words that are most remembered today are these words, quote, General Secretary Gorbachev, he said, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate, Mr. Gorbachev. Open this gate, Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. Well, the Apostle Paul in this section of Ephesians is painting for you the portrait of a man who single-handedly tore down a much greater wall than the Iron Curtain. It's a picture of the peace creator, the peace giver, the great reconciler of God and men and man and man. It's, of course, a picture of Jesus Christ as the source of our peace with God. He removed the enmity that existed between Jew and Gentile in Christ, and he brought together believing Jew and believing Gentile into one new body. This is the picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, the man who removes our rebellion between God and, and us and as well as reconciles men to each other. 
So as we saw last week, there is this vertical and horizontal component to Christ's death. Christ didn't just die to reconcile a rebellious humanity to himself. He died to reconcile a hostile humanity to each other. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul lays out that personal dimension of salvation, of God reconciling us through the death of Christ to himself. But then in the section we're considering for these three weeks, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, Paul talks about the interpersonal or social or relational implications of Christ's death. Last week we saw the condition that we were in before the cross in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And this week we're going to look at what Christ has done to reverse the lost condition of ourselves and hostility towards each other. And next week, Pastor Jonathan will come, Lord willing, and describe what we as believing Gentiles in conjunction with believing Jews have become, namely the church of Jesus Christ, one holy temple together in the Lord in in verses 19 through 22. So this week we're going to look at the middle part of this section in verses 14 to 18 and see what Christ has done to reconcile people who are very different to each other. Where in the ancient world, think about this, where in the ancient world would you find Jews and Gentiles thinking of themselves as blood brothers? The answer is local Christian churches, the church at Ephesus and other true Christian churches. The Apostle Paul says in this text, I want you to think about who made that a reality. Who took the most hostile people toward each other, people who would never sit at a table together to eat, never be considered in the same place, never call each other friends, and all of a sudden are in the same room worshiping the same God together. Who can possibly make that a reality? And I want, to th- I want you to think with me about what that, the peace that he brought constituted. I want you to think about what being brought near to God does to bring people near to each other. Because once people get reconciled to God, they get reconciled to people who are reconciled to God. And all other cultural and personality, and they, they, they fall to lowest common denominator, not even to be considered, even though they're important. Those distinctions are God-made, God-made personality, God-made culture, God wants that. But as far as the importance and the level of weight they carry in our lives, the cross puts all that in its proper perspective. And so that's what Paul wants to show us this morning in verses 14 to 18. So we're going to See this text under three points. Here's the first one in verse 14. Jesus is peace. Jesus is peace. For Paul, peace between believers is very, very important. It's very important because it's important to Jesus, right? John 17, Jesus as as at the heart of his prayer for his people is that they would all be one just as he and the Father are one. See, peace and harmony in the church of Jesus Christ is a reflection of peace and harmony within God himself. God doesn't have rivalries within himself. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit don't seek to compete with each other for, for prominence and glory. Rather, they serve in unified purpose on mission together. As a reflection of that, the church is to be that way. We are to be a unified people made up of diverse roles and gifts and personalities who nevertheless around Jesus Christ are united on mission together. And this whole idea of peace and unity is very, very important to Paul. It's very, very important to Jesus. I mean, just in these verses alone, he mentions it five times. Think about this. Verse 14, he has made us both one. 
Verse 15, that he might create himself one new man in the place of the two. Verse 16, he might reconcile us both to God in one body. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to both. Verse 18, we both have access to one spirit to the Father and one spirit to the Father. This whole both, one, one body, one new man, both. It shows up again and again just in the span of these five verses, every single verse. And what... Paul lays out in the beginning of verse 14 is the foundation of all of that oneness and all of that peace and all of that unity. It says, for he himself, talking about Jesus and his blood, verse 13, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So God aims to create in Christ, in the church, one new people who are reconciled to each other across racial lines. No strangers, no aliens, no enmity, no one cut off or far off. We are fellow citizens of one Christian city of God, one temple, one habitation, one household. For Paul, there are just three groups of people in the world. There are unbelieving Jews, there are unbelieving Gentiles, And then there's the church, which is made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Because in the biblical scheme of things, the world's divided up into ethnic Jewishness and ethnic Gentile. That's everyone who's non-Jew, as we said last week. And then there's the church, which is this third race. This group of people that doesn't find their identity in their culture, in their family, in their country, but who find their identity in Christ. And Christ alone. And Jesus has to be the source. He himself, it's a person. A person is responsible for peace between people. Not a program, not a system, not a self-help method, not a diversity education program. None of that. It's a person who embodies in himself everything that is needed to actualize the peace that is needed, to bring it into reality between people. So how does he do that? Well, it says in verse 14, he does it by breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So there's something here in his flesh, in his body. Notice verse 13 again, by his blood. So this is talking about the cross. This is talking about Jesus hanging on the cross, bleeding. Through that, he's able to kill hostility between people. Now, how does that happen? How can a Jewish man, the son of God, hanging on a cross over 2,000 years ago, how can that make a difference in cultural hostility? How does that fix problems, racial tensions, and division in the church? Well, that's what the rest of this text is going to answer for us. So we've seen that Jesus is our peace. Let's move secondly to Jesus makes peace. We're going to talk about in verses 15 and 16 exactly how he does that. And here's the answer. He dies. He dies by design. And he rises again and is alive. The emphasis here, though, as we saw, falls on his death. We see it in verse 13 where it talks about the blood of Christ. We see it in verse 15 as it talks, or sorry, in verse 14 as it talks about his flesh. 
And then in verse 16, as it talks about through the cross, notice that verse 16, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So the cross, the blood, the flesh, the death of Jesus is what's in view here. And so we have to take this, we have to step back and say, okay, how does the death of Jesus serve horizontal unity between people? How does it, how does it accomplish that? And Verses 15 and 16 really lay that out. And we're going to see two things, okay, about how Jesus does this. He does it by abolishing two things, all right? He does it by abolishing the law as a horizontal dividing marker. And he does it by abolishing the law as a vertical means of justification. Now, I'm going to take those one at a time and try to explain them simply. All right, look at verse 15. Here's how he does it. By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create himself in himself one new man in the place of the two. So verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, this is how he makes and creates, notice that, he creates in himself one new man in the place of the two. So Jew and Gentile are two. He's going to make them one and make peace between them. How does he do that? By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, you remember, remember the context. What's the main context here? The main Jew-Gentile separation, as we saw last week, last week, was circumcision. It was this identity marker in the flesh of the Jewish people that marked them out as God's unique and special people. And we, as we explained last week, Paul says that in, in Christ now, that counts for nothing. Circumcision does not matter as a Jewish marker. So remember what would maintain this hostility between Jews and Gentiles was the Jew looking on the Gentile and not seeing the identity marker of Jewishness and say, unclean, can't be, not part of the covenant people of God, not belonging to God. And what Paul comes along and says, no, circumcision is done away with. It's been abolished. It's done. It's destroyed. So therefore, Jews, you have no ground to now look across the field at Gentiles and see anything physical about them that should warrant your shunning of them. Because that doesn't matter. Circumcision doesn't matter. It is not spiritually beneficial to you at all. So that which separated you from Gentile has been abolished. No horizontal division anymore based on culture. God has established this practice, remember, to mark out his people, but now he comes along and he abolishes it. One commentator says, what is abolished is the law as a set of regulations that excludes Gentiles. Paul will not tolerate a practice of the law that excludes Gentiles or forces them to become ethnic Jews. And that's done away with. We do not have to become an ethnic Jew to be a Christian. Read the book of Acts. Those were things that were going on in the early church. And Paul opposed it strongly. You read the letter to the Galatians. He's opposing it strongly. That there is nothing about this ethnic Jewish ordinances and ceremonies like circumcision that can any longer separate you. All that stuff, as we saw last week, all that's man-made, it's in the flesh, it's by hands, and even though it was a part of God's plan in the Old Covenant, it is no longer. With the coming of Christ, circumcision is fulfilled. Read Colossians 2. Circumcision was filled in the circumcision of Christ. 
which is referring to his death on the cross. And so this whole idea of the law as a means of horizontal division is done away with. So guess what? People can be united now, right? Because there's nothing culturally that they can say, well, I can't be with you because God says I can't. God says I got to be holy and separate. He says, no, circumcision doesn't matter. The fact that Gentiles are uncircumcised does not matter. They can be a part of the people of God as uncircumcised Gentiles, provided they are trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ alone. So horizontal division has been abolished. The law of commandments and ordinances concerning circumcision and other things have been abolished. Therefore, there is no remaining dividing wall of hostility. But there's a second idea here too, and it's in verse 16. He says, not only has he abolished the law of commandments and ordinances, but he abolished, or he, he, he did that, that he might, notice verse 16, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he does something to reconcile people to God and kill the hostility between God and man and man and man. So what's the idea here is that he has abolished the law as a means of acceptance with God. See, the law has been abolished insofar as it functions as a basis of covenant relationship between God and his people, which the Jews believed. And here, it's not the foundation of the covenant relationship. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the covenant relationship. Now, that's not to say that the law is a revelation of the character of God or the moral will of God or anything is not helpful or useful to Christians. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about it as a written code threatening death. Read 1 Corinthians 3. Okay? As a written code threatening death, if you do not obey it, the law has been abolished because the law has been fulfilled in Christ. Christ perfectly has obeyed the law for everyone who would trust in him. So you know what we get when we trust in Christ? A plus. An A plus keeping of the law. We don't in Christ just get forgiven of our sins and have our criminal record expunged but then we're back to ground zero. We've got to earn our way back up. No, in Christ, we get all of our sins forgiven and all of Christ's righteousness, which he lived in his life in perfect obedience to the law, credited to us, given to us, and therefore we're justified on the basis of Christ's work, not our work. So when we stand before God, what God is looking at is if we're trusting in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, not whether we have perfectly obeyed the law, The law is done away with as a foundation for salvation, as a means of vertical justification. So the question then becomes, how does that kill hostility between people? Okay, we've already talked about it, that it's horizontally been killed because the cultural idea and the separation between Jew and Gentile is no longer relevant. But also, in in our vertical relationship with God, it the law has been abolished insofar as it's a basis of covenant and it kills hostility because it can now reconcile all different kinds of people to God, no matter if they're great sinners or little sinners. By the way, that's our own personal estimation of our sin. We are all great sinners, okay? So, but whether or not we're far off like the Gentiles were or near like Jews, we are in the same need of the blood and righteousness of Christ. So Jesus through his one body hanging on the cross, has reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God. Therefore, there is no place for hostility anymore. Jesus said, look, I love you both. 
I love you both so we cannot say to each other, I hate you. God ordained the death of his son to reconcile very different people groups to each other in one body in Christ. So think of this. Christ died to take enmity and anger and disgust and jealousy and self-pity and fear and envy and hatred and malice and indifference away from your heart toward all other people who are in Christ by faith, whatever the race. And my friends, if Jesus could overcome that Jew-Gentile divide, then there is no alienation, no estrangement that he can't cure. And in fact, the local church, this local church, and every local church is to be a living, breathing, walking, talking manifestation of how Jesus has brought together in one all those who trust in him. Whether they be Louisville fans or Kentucky fans, which is a source of division in our community, it must not be in the church. No matter what the color of the skin, no matter what the socioeconomic background, differences aren't removed, but they are dethroned. Differences aren't removed, but they are dethroned. God doesn't want his church made up of all the same kinds of people. Because that communicates nothing of the glory of his grace. But the fact that we are all different, from all different backgrounds, with all different levels of baggage and issues, and all different various stages of life and personality types and socioeconomic things, and all that stuff, and the fact that we have all been brought together in one body united in Christ says something about the power of Christ and the glory of Christ and the truth of the gospel. Which is why divided churches are not commending the gospel no matter how fiery they preach it. The gospel's not power enough, powerful enough to unite people from various cultural backgrounds? Really? Well, the world can't do that either. The world has to legislate it. That's the way we get unity in our country now. Let's legislate it. That'll work. Yeah, right. See how much that works. No, the, what, what the Bible does is say, look... The person, it's a person. There's a person of peace here. And he has removed all the horizontal division and all the vertical demands of the law for your salvation. And in his death and through his resurrection, if you are trusting in that and relying upon him as savior, if you are in Christ, then we are all brothers and sisters. And so when anyone who is different from us, culturally or socioeconomically or whatever, is in our church, is a part of our church, they're home. They are home. And it's our business to make sure that they feel at home because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is first and fundamental to their identity. The first thing we must think about when we think about each other is Christ. Here's the third point. So that's the second point. That's how he makes peace. All right, that's verses 15 and 16. Now, third point, Jesus preaches peace. So we've seen that Jesus is our peace, verse 14. Jesus makes peace in verses 15 and 16. And Jesus preaches peace in verses 17 and 18. Look at those verses again. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. That's Jew and Gentile. So Jews were near. They had the covenant promises as we saw in verse, uh, verse 12 above. 
they were near. He came and preached peace to you who were near, but also peace to you who were far off. So notice, this Jesus is preaching peace. And according to Ephesians six twelve, it's the gospel of peace that he's preaching. So he's preaching the gospel, and he's preaching the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. So Jesus isn't discriminating, right? His gospel's going everywhere, and that's Paul's point. Paul says, is Jesus just preaching to Jews only? No. Is he just preaching to Gentiles only? No. Then he's concerned about both, and he loves both, and he's concerned with saving both. So the Gentiles were far from God, the Jews were near to God, but both needed to hear the gospel of peace. The good news, or the good Jews, and the bad Gentiles, they both needed the gospel equally. That's Paul's point. The gospel goes to all places, and it's for everyone. The gospel is a gospel for Jews. The gospel is a gospel for Gentiles. The gospel destroys the superiority mindset that feeds racism. Because it says God loves you both in Christ equally. He desires the gospel to go to both. All kinds of people everywhere. So a gospel, the gospel annihilates the pecking order that feeds hostility and kills community. It lays everybody at the foot of the cross, says you all are disobedient, you all are sinners, you all deserve the wrath of God, and Jesus loves you both and is determined to save you both through his bloody cross. So the gospel tells you that you are just in need of God's grace and mercy as everyone else, which severs your superiority, and mine too. If I know that I am just as in need of the gospel and God's grace as anyone else in the church, that will serve unity and fight against division more than anything else. You know why churches divide? Because they've forgotten that. They've all become the greatest non-sinner in the room. See, churches divide and split because they don't believe they're sinners anymore. They don't believe they're the neediest person in the, in, in the room that's in need of God's grace and mercy. They're right. And these people are wrong, even if they're in my family. So divorce. No, what, what, what's here is this idea of no The gospel was preached to you. You needed the gospel. You needed to embrace the gospel. You desperately needed Jesus to save you. And so did everybody else in this room. We all need him equally. And so because we have the same need as everybody else and our need has been met in the same way as everybody else, there's more in common than we have different now, isn't there? Way, way, way more in common. Because we have our sinnerhood in common, that is our our status as sinners. We have the need for grace in common. And we have the forgiving mercy through the cross of Jesus in common. And that has a way of tipping the scales in favor of love and unity in a way that nothing else can. And notice the result of all this is that we get access to God together in one body. Verse 18. For through him, we both have access, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
The one place of access to the one true God is through Jesus Christ. And therefore, everyone who comes to the Father through the Son, Jesus, is a brother and sister to everyone else who comes to the Father through the Son. One body, one access to one Father. God doesn't have separate tracks for various kinds of people. He doesn't say, well, you're a Jew. Okay, you get saved this way. You're a Gentile. Oh, you get saved this way. No, he says, you're Jew and Gentile. All right, here's the gospel. You both need it. And by embracing it, you get access. You get the spirit released into your lives, and you're both welcome to the Father. Now, why does Paul remind us of all this? Why does he go at at pains, it seems, to, to describe in detail of what Christ has done on the cross as a source of unity? Why does he want us to maintain this perspective? Well, here's, here's a reason. I think keeping our hearts fixed on the gospel of peace is the main way that we maintain peace with other believers in the church. You can just mark that down, put that in your brain, file that away. The way of, of maintaining peace with other believers in the church is by fixing our hearts on the gospel of peace. There is enough about Christians, if you haven't been able to tell yet, that there is enough about Christians that if we think about each other long enough, we have reason to be pretty discouraged, don't we? I mean, as a family, as we interact with each other, as we sin against each other, as we misunderstand each other, as we let each other down, I mean, there is enough about us as Christians that if we think about each other long enough, we have reason to be discouraged. We remain so broken, we remain so sinful, that if we focus too much on each other, we'll have plenty of reasons to be upset and uproot peace right? Instead of pursuing it. Here's what David Murray says, and he explains this well. Listen to this quote. He says, at the root of disillusionment between Christians is the successful satanic strategy of turning our attention away from Christ and directing it instead toward Christians. The more the devil can keep us thinking and talking about Christians, the less we'll be thinking and talking about Christ. And the more we think and talk about Christians instead of Jesus, the more dismayed and downcast we will become. When you are tempted to start mulling over someone's imperfection, instead, think about the opposite of perfection of Jesus for them. Right? Instead of focusing on Christians apart from Christ, think about Christians in relationship to Christ. And David Murray offers the following advice for keeping the gospel as our main focus as we relate to each other in the church. And I want to close my sermon giving you seven of those. Okay, so these are seven practical takeaways for how to maintain peace in the church by focusing on the gospel. All right? And serving unity and keeping Jesus the main thing. Here's the first way. And these are coming from David Murray. First, look for Christ in each other. Look for Christ in each other. See, this is what the Ephesians weren't doing. They, Paul's like, no, you're focusing too much on Jew-Gentile distinctiveness. Focus on Christ. David Murray says, the most disfigured Christians have something somewhere in their lives where they excel in portraying Christ's image. And it's up to us to find that and admire it. It's up to us to find that and admire it. Let me ask you a question. Are you seeking to find that in the most disfigured of Christians to you? Are you looking for where they are excelling in reflecting the image of Christ? Because I guarantee you every single Christian in this room is excelling in an area of the image of God 
that this church desperately needs to see and admire and think on. Everybody is. Jesus is manifesting his power and grace through you in a way based on your personality and your background and how he saved you by his grace that his work in you is meant to be displayed. So we need to look for that in each other. Second, pray for each other. David Murray says, we've all done it. We end up in company where we start criticizing someone and very soon we've torn them to shreds and left them in pieces. Sometimes we don't need the help of others to do our shredding. We just grind the person to powder in the cruel confines of our own satanic sharp-toothed minds. When tempted to start drilling and sawing away at others, why not pray for them? It's hard to hate someone for whom you pray. And Paul's going to get in. I mean, Paul already prays for this church, right? He says it in verses 15 to 23. He's going to do it again in chapter 3. He's covering this church in prayer and thinking all about what God has done for them. That's how he starts this letter, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God upon, you know, when I think about how he saved us, even though he's going to have to talk to them about things that contribute to horizontal division in their church. What, does he start the letter like that? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the church at Ephesus. i got a problem with you guys. Let me explain. I'm going to cut right to the chase. You all need to quit being hostile to each other. Does he do that? No, for two and a half chapters, he doesn't even address it. Why? Because it's not a big deal in light of what God has done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He saved us. He's called us to himself. He's reconciled us to God. I'm going to pray this into reality in verse 15 through 23 of chapter 1. I'm going to pray that you would understand how much God loves you. And you would know what his hope to you is. And now I want to talk to you about the, the divisions. So he, he prays. Three, spend time with each other. David Murray says, contrary to popular opinion, familiarity does not always breed contempt. Often it can breed affection. It is much more difficult to scorch people when, we have, when we've had a cup of coffee with them or walked a mile in their shoes. Then we realize that they are human after all, that they had an awful childhood or that they're enduring a depressing marriage or that they've never had sound Bible teaching or that there's some significant trial in their lives that puts their words and actions in a different light. Sometimes we just need to spend time with each other and learn each other's stories. Here's what Brian Chappell says. He says without, he talks about this as, and this is important because here's the deal. God has put you in the church so that you'll have relationships with other Christians because you, can, you need what other Christians can teach you about God. And I do too. I need what other believers can teach me about God. Brian Chappell says, Without input from Christians with very different backgrounds and experiences from our own, I will not know all of what the gospel should mean in areas of my life that I have not yet explored. You can't know the gospel the way you need, the, need to know the gospel without the church and without significant relationships with people in the church. This is why if you're Sunday morning here only and not in a community group, I want to push you in that direction. I want to push you toward a group of people with whom you can relate and be known. Would you please open yourself up to that? We want to make it happen for you. We need leaders. 
Would, if you feel called and equipped to lead a group, would you speak to a pastor? The reason we don't have more groups is because we don't have enough leaders. We want this church to be connected, to know each other, to pray for each other. And the bigger we get, the harder that will be. So if we get bigger, we got to get smaller and we're past the bigger. I want you to know that. So we have to, we have to plan smaller. We got we to get people in-depth relationships with each other so you can know each other. Because if we don't do that, we're, we're not going to be feeding the kinds of things that serve community and unity and joy and love. Number four, be patient with each other. Be patient with each other. Murray says, God loves to revive his work in those we have written off. Jesus taught us not to expect everything to change overnight when a person enters the kingdom of God by faith. Instead, he said the work of God's like a little piece of leaven that slowly, gradually, and inevitably leavens the whole lump. We're leaven. It's going to take a while. All right? So we need to be patient with each other that we're not going to change overnight. You haven't changed overnight. Anybody, put your hand up. Anybody been a Christian here over a decade? Over a decade, over 10 years. Okay, put your hand down if you have conquered everything that you were struggling with at the beginning of that decade. Right? Are you still struggling with a lot of the stuff you were struggling with back when you became a Christian? I am. I've been a Christian 15 years plus. Still struggling with a lot of the same stuff I struggled back with then. Now, not in the same way. I fight it and struggle differently than I did then. But at the same time, it's still there. I'm still having to fight it. I'm still having to wage warfare. It's not gone. I'm not living the victorious Christian life. So we need to be patient with each other. It's going to take a while. Sanctification, growth and grace does not happen like this. Just the steady incline with a few bumps. As my brother Jim Golly faithfully reminded me one time, it's more like this. That's the way sanctification works. It's a big mess. And over time, you somehow look back on that and said, I've grown. Good grief, it wasn't an upward, just nice, steady ride with Jesus, climbing the roller coaster of faith, you know? No, it's like right out of the gate. It's just crazy. So be patient with each other. Fifthly, speak positively about each other. Murray says again, one of the most lethal habits Christians can fall into is to talk negatively about other Christians in front of their children or in front of unbelievers. I've seen children spiritually devastated due to regular Sunday meals that served up a diet of roast pastor, barbecued deacons, and boiled Christians. (laughs) The hypercritical tend to to think of themselves as hyper-holy, but unbeknownst to them, at that moment, they may very well be maligning and denouncing Christians and unholy instruments in the hands of the evil one. The devil has made a career out of maligning and denouncing Christians. He's come with, up with both lies and truths about Christians. Oh, I'm just speaking the truth. The devil speaks truth about Christians. I'm just trying to tell the truth, not lying about it. The devil lies. Well, the devil tells the truth, too, and exalts something out of perspective and forgets Jesus, which we can all be guilty of. His aim is to pull down Christians, regardless of whether he's telling lies about them or truths about them. So, Murray says, why not ask yourself whether you may be an unwitting pawn in the devil's clever hands doing his dirty work while he cackles in the background? 
So we need to speak positively about each other and guard each other's reputations. Six, see our faults in each other. See our faults in each other. Not see others' faults in them. That's easy to see. All you got to do is open your eyes and get to know somebody. But I'm talking about seeing our faults in each other. Murray again says, It's amazing how we can be especially hard on people who either have the same peculiar failings that we do or are strong in areas where we are weak. If I can find someone who's even worse than I am at my sin, it somehow makes me feel a whole lot better. The hypercritical are often the most hypocritical. When you detect that you, have been, you are being especially critical of another Christian, seriously ask yourself if this is your besetting sin as well as if their strengths are revealing areas that need to change in you. I think that's good counsel. You know, by the way, I didn't read all this in preparation for this sermon. I read this because I'm reading through a book by David Murray and I happen to be at chapter 4. And I was preparing this sermon this week. And it's speaking to me and challenging me and I'm thinking, this needs to serve our church. This needs to serve our unity. So I'm not thinking of, how can I just beat us up as a church this morning? No, I'm beating myself up first and then calling all of us to think about the gospel in relationship with each other. Last one, number seven, forgive each other. He who has been forgiven much loves much. He who sees how much others have been forgiven loves God for that too. That he loved me and gave himself for me is amazing. That he loved them and gave himself for them is sometimes even more amazing. We need to think about that. The Christ, every Christian in this room, every member of this church, every believer in Christ with whom we're in relationship and called to be a family and called to go on mission together and called to live in community, called to worship together, all that, all of us are, should be amazed that we are saved, that should amaze us the most. And then when we think about each other, we should be amazed and worship God that he saved other people too, that we're just as bad off as us. And so just to briefly summarize these seven, again, look for Christ in each other, pray for each other, spend time with each other, be patient with each other, speak positively about each other, see our faults in each other and forgive each other. As John Lennon famously wrote, imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Well, Lennon had something right in that song, you know. In the modern way of thinking about religion as a self-effort to get to God, to obey God so that you will receive forgiveness from God, he was absolutely right that that's, that, that does not serve unity, serves division. It does. But what he failed to understand is that Jesus Christ and the modern, modern uh, idea of religion are very different from each other. Because Jesus saves by grace, not on the basis of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own grace and mercy, Titus 3. So while Lenin was on to something, he, what he's missing is Christ. Peace is not first a thing to be achieved, it's a person to be embraced. Peace will not be achieved. Let's think about this. To the degree that our church embraces the person of peace, it's to that degree, to that degree we will achieve unity and peace horizontally. We have to value and embrace the gospel at a deeper level than we do now. Okay? So peace is not achievable apart from being united to the Prince of Peace. 
It's neither the end of religion nor the blending of religion that will procure peace. It's only the blood of Christ. And thankfully in Christ, that's exactly what we have. So praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this time in your word where we have gotten to consider this challenging passage related to our horizontal unity in the church. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would fulfill your, your prayer and your promise to your church that we would all be one. We thank you that one day we will be. We know that as we sing sometimes in the hymn, that though your church is by heresies distressed and by schisms rent asunder, and while, while, while we, are, we are not all that we, we are or could be, we live in a fallen world, we're under the curse, church splits happen, division happens, problems happen. We pray that you would do your great redeeming, gracious work in us and through us, God. We are not above this. We need this. We need the gospel. We need the gospel to be huge and important to us in every conceivable and possible way. That it is the thing that we keep in play at our church. That it's always in the discussion. It's always in our perspective. It's always governing our thinking, our feeling, and our behavior. Make it happen for your great glory, Prince of Peace, in your name. Amen.